What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Brian Tannenbaum, head of alternative content at Roku. Brian was good enough to hop on the show. He knew I was going to put him on the hot seat. He knew I was going to ask him about his experiences at Lionsgate, and especially Quibi. I'm fascinated by the whole rise and launch of Quibi, and I'm also fascinated by what Roku is doing now in the original content space. Brian is over there spearheading alternative unscripted programming. He brought over the Quibi slate that he had developed. It now sits on Roku. So I wanted to hear from Brian. What is the future of Roku? What is the future of them as buyers out in the marketplace? Brian also, by the end of this podcast, you're going to want to listen to the end. He told me one of the most unbelievable New York City stories I've ever heard. You think you're loyal to your company? You know nothing until you hear this story about what Brian did on behalf of Quibi. Uh, This is my sit down with Brian Tannenbaum. I hope you enjoy it. So even though it's audio only, I have to compliment you on your backdrop. That might be one of the best Zoom backdrops I've seen all throughout quarantine. Well, I'm glad you said that because if I'm going to be completely honest, it was designed for that very purpose. (laughs) After after Quibi had unfortunately folded and before I had another job, I said to my good friend who's a designer, I knew Zoom room. So when I hit back on the interview market, it looks like things are going well. And so... Here it is behind me. A shout out to Sarah Weichel, former manager, now incredible interior designer who built me my Zoom room. Okay, well, now hold on a second. So are there, I've never thought about this. Are there interior designers that are literally specializing in just Zoom backdrops for offices? No, but my fiance for my birthday got our good friend who's an interior designer to agree to come in here and build what is effectively what we now lovingly call the Zoom room. Now, in, in the back, I see your computer monitor. It's on the Roku channel. Correct. There's one show that's right there. It's called Eye Candy. Have you ever heard of it? I've heard of it. I know the people that worked on that. It's me. But, but it's wait. a fantastic series. But, but wait, is that actually because we're on some sort of splash page on Roku right now? Or is it just you pulling that up to make me feel good? Oh, I pulled it up to make you feel good. Okay. So we're not, we don't have any prominent position on the channel. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, no, you do. You're up top on the feature, bro. Look you're at that. You're in a good spot. No, Look at dude, that. you're in a great spot. Look at that. Josh Groban's oh. face with a, with, a, with a cake slice cut out of it. Is it real or is it cake? That's oh, great, man. It's, I got to tell you, man. Look, I never talk about my own shows on, on, on this podcast like ever. But yeah. I just like went back. It's been so long, as you know, getting that thing actually on the platform for people to 100%. see. And like from when we first at my company, when we first optioned it from Nippon, the Japanese, it's been such a long road. I just finally like went back and like watched it with fresh eyes. Great. It's just like an eight, nine minute, just like fun in and you're out ride. It's just like, it's, it's sweet. Inc- it's sweet. It's incredibly fun. Josh Groban is an, in, an incredible host. He really is. The guest talent could not be more fun. And that set is beautiful. And if, well, I think, I think you like the set because you and Erica Winograd literally told us what the, what the set should be. You guys literally like designed it yourself. But we paid for it. So there you go. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think we all paid for it, if you, if you know That's what I mean, during, during the building <laughs> of that set. But I will say, if nothing else comes of any of that, Josh Groban will be a game show host in some form for as long as he cares to, because he really is 
he really is that damn delightful in that role. I agree. And I will give a quick shout out to your entire team for producing that during sort of the early days of the pandemic. And it is an incredible show for anyone listening. I would encourage you to check it out. I One, one day I will tell, a, a, I guess you can call it funny because nobody got hurt, but I will tell you a funny pandemic related anecdote about that show. One day I will tell the listeners about that, but it may still be too soon. So I won't do it. I, think now. I might know it. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. I'll text you. <laughs> it might it might include said said host and I know yeah this yeah, is a great one that I often tell one, so. of the, <laughs> one of the worst phone calls you could ever ever get. anyway so here's what I didn't know about you man and and yes. I apologize in advance for sounding too surprised when I say this you went to Penn I went to Penn you're an Ivy leaguer it's shocking right your parents must be so proud they are proud they wanted me to be a doctor and yet here I am. Was there a specific type of doctor or did they not care? No, they didn't care. And I joke, my dad, I said, my dad speaks Paris Hilton to the New York Giants. And my sister became, uh, my sister works at a baseball agency and I work in unscripted television. So funny to see how uh, those things split. (laughs) But was there, was there always a calling on your side to work in entertainment? Was there one show or moment that you kind of remember being like, okay, that's, that's where I want to be. Yeah, for sure. So in high school, I was actually a big science kid. I did like novel science research at Adelphi University most days after high school and entered like the Intel science talent search. But the one thing I did at night was watch The Hills. Like The Hills was my show. Laguna Beach was like my show. Adam DeVilla, which, you know, full circle moment later on was a hero of mine. So I went to college. I was a bio major. I actually published my high school research in the International Journal of Biological Sciences. And then I remember just calling my dad being like, I, I really want to be in entertainment. I, I, I love TV. Um, and so we worked together and I found an internship at uh, Lionsgate my first summer uh, from Penn. So first, summer, first summer from Penn? Yeah, my first summer after my freshman year, I interned at Lionsgate for Sandra Stern. And then I never left her side. I interned for three summers and then worked for her for seven years. Oh my gosh. So you did three summers in a row. I, yep. I would love the, to have seen the moment when you've done all this like biomed stuff and you tell your parents, I want to work in entertainment. And you're, and they're like, well, what's the show, honey, that has inspired you? And you had like, if you actually had to sit, sit them down and show them the show that they the want to give up a world, a life of science, it's the hills. <laughs> it was the hills. But dad, Audrina Patridge. It was, it was just Lauren Conrad and Heidi and Spencer and Spidey. I mean, I would talk to my dad about Spidey. He was all in on it. It was an incredible show. And look, Adam DeVille is a master of what he does. I I mean, I, I got the pleasure to have him on the podcast at one point. And you want to talk about a guy that really is, how do I say it? I mean, like we meet a lot of producers that kind of have like a machine gun approach to like making their shows. And he really is like scientific in his own way about how he produces and executes, right? He's an incredible executor. The man is a wizard in post-production. Right. Wizard. Well, it is, it is full circle because you end up going to Lionsgate and you spend like seven plus years there. And like, I'm looking at your resume and it's like, you go from intern over the course of seven years, you shoot up all the way. By the time you leave, your SVP of creative and business affairs, alternative programming. What, what does that mean, creative and business affairs? I know what business affairs is. Yeah. What, what, what was that role by the time you got to that level? So when I started, I interned for Sandra Stern, who at the time was the COO and head of BA. She's now the president of Lionsgate TV. 
And she sat me down, I think, early on in my internship and basically said, you have two routes to take. You can be a creative intern or you can be an intern in business affairs for me. And, and it was clear that, to me at least, that, you know, there were rows of interns that were on the creative side that were do, reading scripts and doing coverage. There weren't really in business affairs. And it felt like an opportunity that I can learn the business side of entertainment. As Sandra always says, you know, it's called show business for a reason. So I actually didn't come up through creative. I came up through business and legal affairs. I have a fake law degree on my, uh, my Zoom room background behind me from the Sandra Stern School of Law, which I can show you. <laughs> But basically, I started in scripted. I started on Sandra's desk. At that point, Lionsgate had, you know, on the feature side, they had The Hunger Games, they had Twilight. On the scripted side, they had Mad Men, Weeds, Orange is the New Black. They really built a reputation as being the go-to independent provider for networks that wanted to get into original programming. And so from that and sitting on Sandra's first as her intern, and then I was her assistant for about a year, year and a half, I came up learning and watching this master at work construct business models with cable networks and new media platforms. So, you know, Orange is the New Black was a deal that Sandra constructed with, I believe, Cindy Holland over at Netflix, one of their first originals. And, and Sandra just was, was and to this day, is brilliant at being able to construct these deal models for new series at, um, at streamers or other networks that are looking to get into original content. So I came up through scripted business affairs. So I started working on the on Manhattan. And at the same time, Lionsgate started building up their non-scripted. And they made a few pod deals with producers who are incredible, like Eli Frankel and Roy Bank. And at that time, there wasn't enough bodies to service those projects as well on the BA side. And so I was excited. I happily took it on. I loved reality TV. I felt real responsibility. Sandra trusted me. Eli and Roy trusted me. And from that, I started working and uh, working on a lot of the non-scripted business affairs. Well, Roy Bank actually gave me some of the best advice I ever got in my career. And it's something I've actually passed on to other folks as they're on their, on their way up the ladder, so to speak, which he said look, if you know you're not going to get the money in a negotiation, give up the money and just ask for the credit because credits are free and credits don't yep. cost anything. And I was like, oh my God, that's so smart. Like it doesn't cost my boss anything to give me the, the credit that I want. It's perfectly free. Look, those guys both took a chance on me too, right? They were starting out their businesses backed at Lionsgate, a young 23, 24-year-old was doing their deals. But I think they saw that I had passion and I was excited on my side for what they were doing. And so we started to build that non-scripted business together. And over time, the creative executives on the non-scripted side at Lionsgate sort of left Lionsgate and there was an opening for some uh, some creative executives as well. And so I pitched Sandra and then also Kevin Beggs me being able to do not only the business affairs, but also the creative as well. And so I started closing deals for a series that I had been developing where some of the pods overseeing some of the creative until such time that the business grew where it needed a real leader. Um, and that was Jen O'Connell. And that was one of the best things that Lionsgate and Sandra Stern ever did with Kevin Beggs and John Feldheimer was bringing in Jen O'Connell to really oversee and treat the non-scripted business like a business. And um, Jen is a mentor of mine, could not have been more supportive of me, helped me grow, built out all of my industry relationships in non-scripted. And, and together, we, I think, were a force to be reckoned with. And so we built out more deals with producers like Matt Kunitz, 
who, you know, taught me the network game. And then we brought in Adam DeVillo and, you know, that yielded selling Sunset. But what, what had happened was I played what I think is an odd dual role where I was doing the creative and the business affairs simultaneously. And so I think the producers loved that because they knew I had passions for the shows and that there was no BA fatigue. I was going to get the deal done as quickly as possible on the best terms for us. Yeah, I I truly can't think of anybody else that kind of has had that dual role where they are... I mean, you have people that will dabble, right? You have people that will jump in when they need to jump in on a deal. But I really can't think of anyone else I know who is like a full-fledged member of both departments. Yeah, I, I, I owe it all to Sandra. Like she was clear that she could build me as a differentiator in town by being able to have both sets of skills. And I have found that, you know, the, the, it's so hard to get a show made and <laughs> it's almost impossible to get a show made. And the last thing that B should do should be an obstacle to get it made. It should be the thing that gets it done. And so I owe her every day and everyone I work with, like, I want to move forward with it. Let's get the deal done as quickly as possible. And I'll step in if I need to, in order to get it done so we can get going to the fun. See, I can see why you interviewed well at Quibi. I can see I can <laughs> see why you interviewed well when you got in a room with Katzenberg. And we're, we're going to get to that in a second. So- Story. By the way, were there any other people you wanted to thank for the Lionsgate run? Because I remember you told me I, you, wanted to, you wanted to give some shout outs. Yeah. Look, Sandra Stern was there from day zero. Kevin Beggs, John Feldheimer, the producers that I were, uh, Jen O'Connell, who I talk to every morning and every day still, Matt Cunin. Do you guys Are you guys really that close? I didn't realize you were still that close. Every, I mean, much to her chagrin every morning and every day. <laughs> Talk to her husband about it. I'm sure it drives him absolutely nuts. But yeah, I mean, Jen is my biggest supporter. And look what she's doing over at HBO Max. Like, look at the swings that she's willing to take. And FBoy Island just got renewed, right? That's yeah. a great idea. And it requires someone to say yes. And she, she did, so. Yeah, she's a force of nature. Force of nature. So, so you're at Lionsgate. You see how hard it is to get shows on air. You've now yep. worked with some amazing partners. How does the Quibi job, how does the idea of you leaving and jumping ship even get put in front of you? Who, who first approached who? Um, I approached them. So at the time I was, I had just finished producing a show for YouTube, really the first in-house, produ- sorry, not for YouTube, for Facebook. I just finished producing a show called for Facebook called You Kidded Me, which was a hidden camera show that we partnered with Kim Kardashian, thank you, Lance Klein, to uh, produce for Facebook, 10 episodes. And I had felt like I had really came up with that show, packaged it, sold it through. I had felt like I had really done a, a lot. Of, look, I could always learn at Lionsgate, but I had been there a long time. And an email came in that Lionsgate was investing in a company at the time called New TV. Uh, going to be, you know, a Jeffrey Katzenberg backed short form mobile platform. And at that point, I had learned a lot about what Facebook was doing through Facebook Watch, because that's what we were, we were producing. But then Jen also very smartly had us really focused on streamers for our business. So whether it was Kevin Hart's What the Fit for YouTube, or you did me for Facebook, or we had Selling Sunset, the Joe McHale show, the Norm McDonald show for Netflix. Like it was clear that I, I believed it was clear that, you know, on the network side I was heading towards streamers. And so short form and under 10 minutes really in my mind equated to non-scripted television. And I thought there was a, a potential huge opportunity there. And so 
I asked a colleague of mine. To Wait, hold on, hold on, one second, one second, Brian. I want to go back real quick because you said something interesting that when you're at Lionsgate, the kind of the, the focus became for the platforms. Now, obviously you go where the opportunity is, right? Yeah. But you being a deal guy, right? You being a BA guy, weren't the deals with streamers like Netflix probably worse for you guys at Lionsgate than making a deal with like NBC, ABC, CBS, where you guys could still own it and control distribution? I think it depends on the show for sure, but we were able to craft some great deals, uh, not patting myself on the back, Sandra was heavily involved at some of the streamers, particularly Facebook. And, and candidly, that became the basis for some elements of the Quibi non-scripted deal, which I helped. Oh, market. interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you, so you hear about this and, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about is part of the genius of how Katzenberg rolled out this plan because he gets $2 billion of backing from all the major studios in town. So every studio in town is incentivized to see this platform develop into a success. And at the same time, they're going to get their shows on the platform. And because of the license agreement you guys carve out, they'll, they'll own them and get them back in, in a matter of years. So Lionsgate being one of those partners, that's how you first hear about this new TV idea. Yes. So how do you put your neck out there and interview while you're still employed, which is a tricky do you, dance. Do, do you know the answer? Do you know the story here? No. Okay. This is a good one then. Um, so I reached out to a colleague who sets me up with another colleague that had already signed up to a, a future colleague that had already worked at Quibi and said, I'm interested in hearing more about what you are doing at Quib at new TV at Quibi, let's call it. And so a breakfast gets set between me Jeffrey Katzenberg and Janice Min, who was someone that I had met and who had um, intru- who had gone there to oversee Daily Essentials and then who connected me to Jeffrey. And so we had breakfast at seven somewhat, seven a.m. in the morning Where? at John, John and Vinny's. Okay. And uh, I had just a list of questions, right? Like I was, I was so excited to meet Jeffrey. I was so excited to be with Janice, who's brilliant. And I, I could not you know, I wanted it. I felt like I could build and wanted the access that Jeffrey had and and believed in starting something new. And so I met Jeffrey and Janice at breakfast. He essentially said at the table, like, you're hired, but you got to meet Doug Herzog tomorrow. That was a Saturday. Okay. So Friday, breakfast with Jeffrey and Janice, 7am, one hour breakfast, you're hired, subject to meeting Doug Herzog on Saturday. Go back to the office at Lionsgate. Now it's like 8.39 a.m. And Jen O'Connell walks in. And Jen O'Connell is like, I'm trying to, she's very dressed up. She's just very dressed up. And Uh, I say to Jen, and by the way, this is like early for either of us really to be at work. And I say to Jen, like, you're so dressed up. Where are you going? She goes, oh, I have dinner at Doug Herzog's tonight for an Emerson (laughs) event. (laughs) And so... I'm just like staring at Jen, who has to have dinner with Doug Herzog that night, knowing that tomorrow I have to have my what would be second and final interview. So I go back into my office. I call my dad and I said, I don't know what to do here. He's like, yeah, you know exactly what to do. You need to go back into Jen's office. So I go into Jen's office and I say, I can't believe I'm about to say this to you, but I interviewed 
for a position at new TV this morning. And I have a final interview with Doug Herzog tomorrow. And she looked back at me and she said, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'll do whatever I can to help you get that job. And so it wasn't wasn't just her. Then I then, you know, called Sandra too, who was, I think she was out traveling somewhere. And I explained to her what the position was and the opportunity was. and, And she said very clearly, you'll always have, you'll always have a position here at Lionsgate. This place will always be your home, but, but go learn and, and, and go kick ass because there'll always, there'll always be a place for you here. Wow. And um, I, uh, so that's the story of how I. Okay. Wound up. All right. <laughs> a great. Amazing story. But I want, I want to back up because we okay. can't just gloss over the first breakfast meeting with Katzenberg. Yeah. Because the man is a legend. The man yeah. is one of the last true moguls, right? Yeah. The guy has, the stones to go around town asking for 2 billion in financing. And I don't even know when he started doing this, when he started presenting the idea, like pitching all the studios in town, I don't even know if Jeffrey Katzenberg had so much as a one pager on what this was. Like, I think he literally just because of his relationship said, here's what it's going to be and explained it. And then studios start forking over like 200 million a piece on it. So when you have breakfast with him, First, let's talk about the man himself. Talk to me about the presence and, and, and did you have his full attention? What was he like at the table? Let's talk about that as he's conducting the interview, he, his personality. He, he gives every person he's in the room with their full attention. He makes you feel special and heard. I was sitting across from a mogul that was responsible for things like the Lion King and DreamWorks. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I, I believed I went in it with extreme confidence and really leaned on, as I often do, my business affairs background as a differentiator and really laid out why I believed that particularly in the non-scripted space, if we were going to do license deals, we were going to get the top shows and the top creators. And I think we did. And in a world where, you know, it's work for hire and the network retains 100% of the rights, we were constructing models where sometimes the talent owned directly or the production companies owned directly. We were really able to be incredibly competitive. And I think that that resonated with him when I when I explained that, you know, not explained, he, he understands this too. Major talent was doing non-scripted. Jamie Foxx was hosting beat Shazam. Like this was an opportunity for us to work with incredible talent, whether it be Chrissy Teigen, who can knock out a full season of a Quibi show in three days. Right. And so it was really an opportunity I pitched for talent to have an incredibly fun time, be well compensated and own a material piece of the series um, at, at a new place that was building. But how did, how in that moment was he explaining what it was to you? Like he how did pretty, he how did he lay out the plan to yeah, him? What was well, Quibi at that moment? He had a very impressive deck that was you know the deck that I say raised two billion and and is something that I then proudly shared every day at Quibi, which was like it was a mobile revolution. It was premium short form. It was for these on the go moments during the day. The only rule was that episodes were less than ten minutes. We had the full backing of all the studios, so we'd be able to get incredible IP. And he had the Midas touch and would be able to get any talent that we wanted to be in business with in the doors. And he was 100% right in being able to bring in great IP and great talent. 
So growing up when Punked was my favorite show, uh, I couldn't believe when I was sitting in a van across from Jason Goldberg, who with Chance the Rapper at the helm was about to Meg the Stallion, or whether it was Kiki Palmer hosting a reboot of Singled Out in the TRL stages that I went to when I was 16 years old. Like this was, this man changed my life in terms of believing in my ability to pick them and being able to attract the top talent there to the platform. At that point, was it still being geared towards a younger audience? Because yeah, I feel like when Quibi was first going to roll out, it was meant to be for like Gen Zers, right? And then eventually, like slowly over time, pre-launch, the, the, the word around town in terms of the quote-unquote mandate was that it was, it was going to be broader than that. No, I think it I think it was always broader than that. To me, it was like millennials were always the sweet spot, but we felt like we would go a little bit over a little bit older, a little bit younger. Got it. Yeah. And you got you talk about the talent you guys worked with. I mean, you mentioned Chance, but like Will Smith and J Lo and Demi Lovato and Kendall and Chris Jenner and the WWE. And I'm only talking about your unscripted slate, man. I mean, you guys, you guys were hustling. I mean, that that year and a half after you got there to make the launch date. I mean, you guys were making deals all over town. I remember Jeffrey saying to me at least three times a week, did you say yes yet today? Like he wanted us to say yes. That was his dream, was that this group of 27 to 35-year-old network executives with, with passion and excitement for shows were saying yes as often as they could. And we were. All right, so October 2018, the Quibi name is coined. And it is said in the press that it stands for Quick Bites. Are you there at the time when that gets coined? I am not. I believe that I had already, I had signed up to go, but I hadn't started yet. Okay, so what did you think? You've signed the papers and you're about to go and Quibi the name. Did, what, was the name getting love? Did you like it? Were you into it? Did it, did it or did it bump you when you first heard it? I got it. It was Quibi stand for quick bites. It felt like a differentiator. I was not going to leave anything on the table. I was going in full force to make this, you know, dream a reality. All right. So you guys make massive talent deals. You guys have a murderer's row of executives. You mentioned Janice Min, but you have Jim Toth who ends up leaving CAA and is the head of content. Uh, yep. you, you mentioned Doug Herzog, right? And you steal, you steal DC's president and Diane Nelson, right? So you have these heavyweights all over the place, but even like on the production or, or the uh, product development and engineering team, you've got execs from Snap, Instagram, Pandora, and, and Hulu. So it's an amazing team and it's all building up towards this launch, this April 6, 2020 launch. And this is two months into the pandemic. So as the pandemic hits around what, February? We're starting to get some lockdowns, maybe. What is the conversation inside the building at Quibi leading up to this launch date as like the world is seemingly falling apart? Look, I, I was not as close to those conversations, but what was clear was that the excellent team that you just mentioned across product, tech, engineering, were going to be able to launch this product on time as needed. And there was no concerns, no jeopardy, towards being able to launch the product. And right, so, that's, I give credit to those teams for being able to pull that off virtually. And it launches April 6th. Are you guys yeah. like getting instantaneous 
numbers or are the numbers like being kept from like majority of the company? Like how transparent were the numbers and the traffic and the ratings, so to speak? They were transparent with us. Like when did you know that the numbers were maybe not what you guys had hoped for? That's a good question. It's hard for me to track that, Jimmy. I'm sort of getting evasive here now. Yeah. Um, I think over the first couple of months, perhaps they weren't as high as those had wanted, but to be candid, like my eye was just on getting more shows up and running and keeping going. Like we, we weren't, I I don't know that I knew what the current state was. I was so focused on, you know, the shows that were in post getting up new shows is still attracting new talent. Like my eye was the team's eye on the creative content side. We're, We're still on the prize of how do we get incredible talent and incredible stays up and running. So it is eight months after launch, almost to the day, uh, news breaks that Roku might acquire the library, right? But for weeks earlier than that, it had been well known that Quibi was looking to shop itself, so to speak. So when, what, was the, like, what was the moment when Jeffrey kind of addressed the troops? Here's what I will say. I give a lot of credit, for it, a lot of credit to, to Jeffrey and Meg for seeing perhaps at the writing that, that it wasn't going to turn out to be what it wanted to be and doing what I think is an incredibly noble, responsible thing of winding down the company on a timeline where they could do right by its employees financially and by its yeah. investments. And rather than keep going and, and not perhaps being able to do that, they chose, this was one of our values, right? Choose the hard right, not the easy wrong. That was one of the values that has stuck with me. And I think that that decision was emblematic of that, Mm. which is, uh, it's not looking like it's going to work. Let's do right by the dreamers that came here and and make sure they're protected as well as the people that invested. So what, I mean, Um, so how did, how did they go about telling everybody? Was it just a big zoom? Like, Hey, we're going to do a zoom at 8am. Everybody, we're going to address everyone at once. Or was it kind of a rolling word of mouth in the building? No, we were informed via zoom. Got it. Got it, man. And how did that, I mean, when that went down, because you were all in, like you said, you know, you were all in, you had left a job of like seven something years, right? It's your first buyer job and it doesn't go as planned. And, and obviously that's, that's life of a startup, but like, do you kind of remember where you were personally in that moment? Like emotionally, mentally, physically? I was proud of what we built. I'm yeah. sure my camera back on for that. Like <laughs> I loved that place. I st- I'm, I'm so proud I get to be a part of its legacy here at the Roku channel for its second birth, but um, it was an honor to be a part of. Uh, you know, Doug Herzog or another people talk about like the, M- the old MTV days being these glory days. And I-, I was not a part of those, so I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine that we had a bit of that too. We were young hustlers, well-capitalized. We were working for legends. It wasn't just Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman and, and Janice Min and Jim Toth and Doug Herzog and Diane Nelson. It was Rob, Tom Conrad and Rob Post on the product side. Like this was the Avengers of <laughs> executives. And every, I mean, there were people there that Joe Burfitt from Snapchat and Nick Allen and Leo Rofe and, and Marnie on ad sales. I was exposed and learning from people that I had never been near in, in my career. And, you know, Jeffrey says it's his most proud failure. I could only hope to us fail as many times as we did over at Quibi. Like I, I 
say I still bleed Quibi purple, which is very helpful given Rogue is purple as well. Um, it, it was it was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I am so fortunate and and humbled by it simultaneously. All right, so uh, last last Quibi question. I want to hear all about yeah. Roku because it's very exciting what you're doing at Roku. Let me ask you the two billion dollar question, and I'm sure you've thought about this. Yeah, I know. I was waiting for this one. Why didn't it work? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I don't, and I'm not trying to get out of your question. No, no, because it's, it's not just one thing, clearly. It, yeah, not look, I think we were an experiment to begin with. We launched yeah. as an experiment of an experiment in a pandemic. Um, ultimately, I don't think it had the distribution that it needed, but what is clear is when you have great content and distribution together, that's magic. And that's what I've been so appreciative to see over here at the Roku channel. But um, I've thought about it often. I still think about it. I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Roku acquires the library. Now, as that is, as those deals are in the works, like when do you learn that there might even be an opportunity for you there? How is, how is that presented? Jeffrey. (laughs) So So does he call you and say, Hey, you're doing this or like, what, what was it? No, I think that, um, look, they had told us that Roku was acquiring Quibi, the service. As a result, the series would be available on the Roku channel. I had candidly not known a lot about Roku until after the acquisition. But Jeffrey asked us, and of course, we all obliged to make the introductions to the executives at Roku, to the production partners and talent that were on the series. And as part of that process, it became clear that there could be potentially opportunity um, to be an executive and join the Roku team to shepherd the projects and then with success, build out the strategy for original programming. And so um, that was an opportunity that, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Jim O'Gorman, who was an incredible head of talent talent related, not talent relations, head of HR, but we called it TAL, talent and organization, mm-hmm. um, set up for me um, at Roku with Rob Holmes and Jennifer Vox. And to explain to me the onboarding process, like once you got to Roku and what you've now learned about the Roku platform and the Roku audience and, and where, where it's headed. Look, the, the number one thing I learned, and I had mentioned it earlier, was that the combination of distribution and great content is, is extraordinary. And look, I, what I learned, Roku's number one, like Roku's America's number one TV streaming platform. The reach of the Roku channel is over an estimated 70 million people. There's active accounts of north of 50 million on the platform and the platform can drive people into content in ways that I never knew existed. And so as I started at the organization and learned more about the company and how they would be able to get series and and showcase them and feature them on platform, I honestly was just incredibly grateful and appreciative that I got to call all the talent and creators and let them know that their content was in great hands and that it would be able to be seen by millions of people for the first time for free. And that one of the major differentiators of the Roku channel is on a Tanevat platform. 
it is 100% free to the consumer. And given that the reach and the ads team at Roku is so incredible, we can provide premium content for free to the masses. And it's been absolutely wonderful and encouraging to see the now Roku original content flourish on the Roku channel. It's been mind-blowing because you guys did a great job of explaining it all to us, your your partners, when iCandy went over to Roku. And dude, I mean, I don't think most people realize, like, you can see Roku programming without having a Roku device. You, you know, like you, you can just go on the website and it's all there and it's all free. And there's a S load of movies and a ton of shows to watch. And you don't have to actually have the hardware in your house as your streaming device in order to get it, which like, I, I honestly did not know until we started having that conversation. There's 40,000 plus TV shows and library titles that are refreshed constantly that entertain and drive people into the Roku channel. You can watch it, as you mentioned, on the RokuChannel.com. There is a mobile app. You can watch it on, you know, Samsung TVs and other smart TVs. And you can watch it on the Roku Stick and, and Roku and Roku TVs. There's tons of ways to watch all of the programming. And, and I smile when I say that people do. But it, you know what's interesting is like you look at the two different models, right? You look at the two different models and the time in which they launched between Roku and Quibi, right? And you look at like who the heavyweights are in streaming and with Netflix and, and Amazon. And even when Hulu started, they started as platforms that were airing other people's shows. They became destinations for third-party acquisitions. And they built themselves as a distribution platform based on other people's shows before they got into originals. Quibi starts from scratch being all originals from, from day one before it even had distribution or had that audience there. And it didn't work out as well. And it really feels like what we're seeing between Roku and Quibi like, are two examples of like kind of the last two cases of either scenario. Because now every major studio has their own platform. And I just can't see, I can't see another Quibi ever happening again. I can't see another Hollywood-backed indie, I guess you could say, an indie, an indie platform that's all originals ever again to compete with all the platforms out there. I feel like it's going to be the last of its kind. I think that's fair to say. It's hard for me to speculate on that. But what I'm able to share is that, look, like Roku itself is an agnostic platform in that we proudly are, you know, the easiest way we believe to be able to stream all the different incredible outlets out there, whether it be Netflix or HBO Max or Disney Plus or Peacock, right? Like we're, we're right. your one-stop shop, we're your home where you can stream everything. The Roku, the Roku originals on the Roku channel are, are just another part of a larger content portfolio, you know, where you can watch and stream content. Yeah, it's, it, it's genius, man. It's genius because you have the hardware and the software, so to speak. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to be here and I'm joined by about, you know, 10 to 20 former Quibi employees who have come over to Roku to help with the onboarding and then the future of original programming on TRC, which is what I, I call the Roku channel. So in terms of unscripted, yep. where you are overseeing that content right now, yep. is it going to go beyond just the Quibi shows that you've brought over and that Roku has inherited? Is is there conversation moving forward of Roku green lighting unscripted shows, you know, f beyond? Yes. There are current internal conversations about what our future content strategy will be outside of the currently launched 
non-scripted originals. Why do you sound so buttoned up right now? As you say, are you reading an email right now? What are you doing? Your eyes are. I'm not. I'm trying to be careful with my words here <laughs> to not to not make any promises, but be clear that it's in conversation. I, yes, I'm excited that I believe that based off the performance of the initial series, um, you can expect to be hearing more about our future in this space. That's great. See, I'll take the tease. I'll take the tease. I'll there take you go. That's okay. You, you, you can be ambiguous about it. That's okay. That's exciting. Take me on. Yes, it's very exciting. No, it is because like all of us in the industry, like you said, it is harder every year to sell a show. So 100%. the more partners, the more outlets, the more buyers, it's it's better for everyone in the creative community. So it's it's good to hear that that is even a scenario being discussed right now. Yeah, and sort of a leader in the Avod space that can get out your series to millions of people for free. Like the value of that, the value of free, the value of mass distribution is something that I, I am learning here each and every day more of the power of this platform to, to get eyes on content. Okay, so you're off the hot seat. I've given you all the hard questions, okay? So right. you, can t- you can exhale. Was that okay? We got through it. It's great for me. Okay. So before you go, I just want you to tell me, give me just one great anecdote from your last two years where you were like, how, how did I get here? And what, what, what is going on? Like where you knew where you, that you're allowed to tell, where you knew this is going to be my Quibi story. This is going to okay. be my Quibi story. I, I know this coming. one. I got this one. Do, do, have, I told you, have I told you about the, the New York, what happened in New York? I, no, I don't think so. Okay. So we had one of the best parts about Quibi was we had this technology called like turnstile where you could watch the content in vertical or horizontal, right? And so we had people be able, they, the series were produced such that you could seamlessly go from horizontal to vertical. Right. This technology was proprietary, it was developed and it was put on my phones so that I could share it with producers and talent to entice them to continue to work with us. Smart. This tech, this technology was probably on my phone for, I don't know, two days. And I had a work trip in New York, so, to New York. So I flew to New York for a work trip. The tech's on my phone. It's raining. I'm walking outside with Alex Montalvo. I'm going to meet, I believe, Sean Witt for drinks. And someone runs behind me grabs my phone out of my hand. I get mugged and starts running. Now, I am not in spectacular shape as, as a human, but I, I do work for someone that would care very deeply about that technology. And, and I'm so glad that Alex Montalvo can back this story. It is pouring rain and I start sprinting after my mugger, screaming in the streets of New York, if anyone will stop this person that has my and we are running through the streets and spectacularly to me, I'm sort of keeping up with this person who then turns around, sees me chasing him and pulls out a knife and says like, you, you like effectively like stop chasing me. You're not getting back your phone. And immediately I do what I know what to do best, which is like negotiate. And, and I say to him, what? I, I, say, I say to him, I don't know what to tell you, but you actually have more value holding that phone with me than you'll be able to get on the market. So name your price and I will pay whatever it costs to get back that phone. And he set a number 
And, and I said, great, we have a deal. Shuck his hand, walked to CVS, took out the cash, gave him the cash. He gave me my phone back. Um, and then I emailed Jeffrey and I said, you'll never know it. You can't believe what just happened, but um, I got mugged when I got back my phone. And he responded some form of, you're an idiot and your mother's going to kill me. <laughs> and that was <laughs> sort of how it ended. But I guess my best Quibi story is that um, I got mugged in the streets of New York and then negotiated and chased down my mugger in order to protect the tech. I'm gonna was go that? for the I'm gonna go for the easy joke here, but if that's your best Quibi story, I would hate to hear your worst Quibi story. Oh no, no, I, I'm most proud of it. Oh my god, holy shnikes! Was what the turnstile thing, or ever you describe? Was that right? The turnstile? What was it yeah. called? Yeah. What was it? Literally, like, were you like one of three phones that had it on, or something? Were you like one of? No, I mean, a bunch of us had it, but I, I was protective of it. And I just didn't, I just didn't want to, I couldn't let it get out there. I didn't want that to be me. So. Okay. So when you walk to write it. <laughs> CVS. CVS. When you walk to CVS yep. in pouring rain in New York, yep. does he have the knife like at your no, back? The knife, no, the knife was away. Okay. So he was, okay. So he was reasonable in that way. Totally. We had a closed deal. Oh yeah, because you know he's totally gonna just be reliable. The guy I that just bugged you is yeah. The guy that, he's not gonna in any way backtrack no, on a deal. Alex Montavo is standing outside the sliding door. I know Alex Montavo. He's not exactly a, a bouncer at a nightclub. Okay, no, ask Alex. He had my back. We were we were we were getting the phone back at any cost, and we did. Oh my God, Brian, that's incredible. That's dedic- That is dedication right there. Yeah, that's how I felt about the company. Man, you really did. You, you almost literally did bleed purple on the New York streets. It was, it was a good run. Okay, tell me one last thing. Tell me what you took away from Katzenberg just in terms of how he handles his staff, runs his business. Like, what did you take away? Because you learned something from every boss you have. Yeah. So was it like his immediacy responding to emails, like something as simple as that? Was it giving people your undivided attention? Was it a way he addressed people? What, what do you take away that you think you will instill into your bag of tricks moving forward? Yeah, so I'm gonna go back to another former Quibi value, which was exceed expectations. He, he was a master at, at exceeding expectations mm. and, and telling us each and every way, like when these people come into these meetings, like dazzle them. And that's what, that's what we did. The power comes from being able to exceed expectations. And if you can do that with people, that's how you get to be in business with incredible people. So um, that, that's something that I, I think about every day. How can we exceed expectations in every aspect of what we do? And, well, um, well, to that point, and it's something that network people don't really do enough, is you were basically given the mantra of acting like a seller while being the buyer. He was, he was telling you to dazzle the people that were coming in to pitch you, which is never, I mean, as far as I know, never exactly what is taught in network school of being a buyer. I, look, I, it was the first buyer that I worked at. It was certainly was not a traditional one, but yeah, we were, we were in sales mode. We, we were having to tell the town why they should work with us. And th- that Quibi deck that I could recite, you know, however many pages it was, I knew the speech to get those people in and that technology that I got mugged, you know, that I, that I saved in my mugging, like it it was spectacular to see people's faces 
the first time you turned the phone and they could see that it was so seamless and it made so much sense. And that's what he instilled. Also, I mean, his work ethic is undeniable and, and he responded to everyone same day, made you feel special, made you, you had access to him. I, I mean, I, I could go on and on. He's a remarkable man and will be remembered as such. I, I, as part of that negotiation with the mugger, I really wish when you had asked the mugger how much he wanted for the phone, I really wish his first response would have been, what, I'm going to negotiate against myself? <laughs> yeah. Hey, here's what I've learned from Sandra. If, if you're transparent with people, they tend to be transparent back. Oh my God. Brian, thanks for doing this, man. Was this okay? It was great. I have not really spoken about, I mean, I'll hear from the Quibi people if it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, your Roku people will, will go through this with a fine, fine tooth yes. comb first, of course. And then I'm sure you'll get some, uh, some DMS, uh, from, from the Quibi alumni. Yeah. Look, uh, this was great. It was cathartic to speak about it. I have nothing but positive t- thoughts towards Quibi. And again, like I'm honored that I get to be the one that shepherded here at Roku. Thanks for doing this, man. My pleasure. I will talk soon.